Today's episode is sponsored by Kai Scissors. Kai Scissors are the premier sewing, quilting, tailoring, and craft scissors available today. Made of hardened stainless steel, they are smooth, light, and offer fatigue-free cutting for all of your cutting needs. Kai Manufacturing has been making quality cutting blades for over 100 years. So remember, all orders on kaiscissors.com, that's K-A-I scissors.com, have free shipping inside the United States. Visit them at kaiscissors.com today. Thank you so much, Kai Scissors. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 147 of the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today, we're talking about running an indie sewing pattern business with my guest, Taylor McVeigh. Taylor is a designer, artist, and educator. She creates sewing patterns for unique architecture-inspired garments under the name Blueprints for Sewing. Along with running blueprints, Taylor teaches fashion design, pattern making, and sewing in the Boston area. Along with teaching and designing patterns, Taylor creates one-of-a-kind garments, experiments with techniques like weaving and embroidery, and loves to repurpose and recycle textiles. She spends a lot of her time thinking, writing, and talking about slow fashion. And Taylor lives not too far from me, so I'm excited she was able to come to Wellesley and spend some time with me today in my studio. So Taylor McVeigh, welcome and thank you for coming to visit me. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's so nice when people can come and actually see me here in Wellesley. Excellent. You have a beautiful studio. It's very inspiring. Yay! So I'd love to start off if we could with you telling us the story of a dress that you made from some scarves that you thrifted when you were maybe 12 or 13. And I think it was maybe all hand sewn. I'm not sure, but um, maybe you made it on New Year's Eve. Yeah. And um, it was like the dress that started it all. So yeah. tell us about that. My dad will be so happy to hear this. <laughs> so um, I, I've always been, a, I was always a kid who just like made stuff constantly, um, you know, the usual doll clothes, things like that. I remember making very elaborate sets for the dolls too out of cereal boxes and wallpaper scraps. And so my parents were really keen on this. And uh, one year, uh, as you were when you're 12, 13, you sort of want to be doing your own thing, but you're still kind of tagging along with your parents. And I was like, okay, if I'm going to go to this you know, grown-ups New Year's Eve party, I want to wear something fun and cool and make it. So Um, I asked my dad to take me down to this little um, vintage shop that was in our town that I've been going to since I was a little kid. It's like one of my earliest clothing shopping memories, which is probably pretty formative in terms of the adult that I am today. Um, And they always had this huge bin full of scarves. Uh, So I asked him to take me down there. I raided the scarf bin. I bought maybe, I don't know, like 12 uh, printed silk and nylon scarves and brought them home 
and decided I was making myself a dress. So I took all these scarves and an old t-shirt to use for the top. And I borrowed a guitar case from my dad. My dad's a musician. And I kind of used the guitar case as a makeshift dress form (laughs) because I was a very skinny child that was a little more curvy on the bottom. So it was the perfect shape. Uh, And I sort of just, you know, wrapped it around the guitar case and stitched it together, a little handkerchief hem, all these really cool, you know, 60s and 70s floral print scarves. And I remember being very proud of it. It was kind of one of my first, I guess, my first garment that I ever made, which is kind of a big deal because that's what I'm obsessed with to this day. And so did you wear it to the party? I totally did. And I got a lot of compliments. Um, (laughs) You know, it was kind of a uh, my mom was in the film industry, so it was kind of like a fancy film industry party. And I remember a lot of, there was some actress that they told me, oh, she came up and she's like, where did your daughter get that dress? I have to have one. <laughs> and I was like, I made it. So That's so cute. So what did your parents do for work? Your dad was a musician and your mom was in the film industry. What exactly were they doing? So my mom, uh, my mom was on a pretty well-known TV show in the 80s called Fame, which was about a performing arts high school. She was one of the main characters. Um, she's also been a director and she's been a writer and um, did theater and film and things like that. She uh, put together a movie, or she uh, produced a movie a couple years ago, directed a movie, rather. Um, And she's done all kinds of cool things in theater and film. And uh, my dad is a musician, a guitar player, and a singer-songwriter, a folk singer for my whole life, but has spent the last couple of years um, teaching middle school uh, music. And he's also in the process of Uh, promoting this book that he wrote about teaching music from the right brain. So instead of a more theoretical approach, one that's based on patterns and, um, and learning it by doing it. Uh, So there's a lot of like, uh, art and creativity and teaching and all of that stuff in my family. So that's Did you have siblings? I did. I have a half brother. I have two half brothers. Um, and I have uh, one full brother, and uh, they're all younger than me, so I've got three little brothers. Oh, wow, that's great. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. Um, so it sounds like you had a lot of creativity encouraged mm-hmm. in your house and a lot of teaching as well as totally. part of your life. Yeah, up. it was absolutely um, a, a house that encouraged any kind of creative experimentation, both for me and my brother. Um, my brother ended up getting into construction and is sort of studying to be an architect. So it's kind of that same making things. There's always like a lot of making things. You know, my mom would like craft things and cook and my dad would like build furniture and do, you know, music and theater and all those kinds of things. So it's a very encouraging household in that way. Yeah. And so when you decided to go to art school, that was totally okay. Oh, I was not a rebellious move. Totally, totally. And my parents were really supportive of it. And I really feel very privileged and appreciative of the fact that they really encouraged me to pursue art. I I mean, I don't think they really had a choice. It was kind of the thing I was pretty set on doing, but I'm glad that they were so supportive of me in the process. Okay. And before that happened, you did learn to sew. I mean, the dress, that first dress was the first one, but then you did get a sewing machine. It sounds like your dad was supportive, got you a sewing machine. And were you making things in high school? Absolutely. Um, When I was in high school, uh, you know, my antidote to sort of the trappings of popularity in middle school um, meanness was to go very heavily into sort of a punk rock DIY existence. So when I was a teenager, I was very much kind of in the punk thing, loved the music, and made a lot of my clothes, you know, where it was a place where making your clothes was cool and it was interesting versus, you know, the middle school and high school where I went to where it was sort of looked down upon, right? Because it was, uh, you know, a little bit almost like 
think of how to phrase this. So it was a, a nice, it was a good school, right? I, I was kind of academically inclined. So I was at a school that was a little bit more um, academically rigorous and had, you know, a lot of students who were like come from wealthy families. And so the whole making your own clothes thing was sort of looked down upon and uh, the sort of punk uh, community was a lot more receptive to that. And so uh, I have great pictures of some of the outfits I whipped up when I was in that time period. I went to a lot of thrift stores. I refashioned and repurposed things. And I did from scratch sew some of my own clothes too. Um, but that was a thread throughout, you know, even though I was sort of thinking about being an artist, right, with a capital A and I painted and I did all of that kind of stuff. Um, making clothing was an art form that really kind of took me through a time and also took me through what was kind of a challenging time in middle school and high school as it is for most people. Yeah, totally. Okay. And so um, you went to the School of the Museum of Fine Arts, Mm -hmm. is that right, in Boston, Mm -hmm. which I love. And um, so you're here at my house and um, I haven't taken you on a full tour, but we (laughs) collect art and... the way that we began was going to the museum school sale in November. And uh, my husband and I um, bought a painting there together when we were dating. And then I thought to myself, gosh, if we break up, what's going to happen to the painting? (laughs) Who gets custody? I know, who gets (laughs) custody? Thankfully, we stayed together. And so every year, instead of buying each other a holiday present, we buy each we buy a piece of art for the house. That's cool. At the sale, which they, I, we love that that sale. And anyway, it's a, a wonderful school. So did yeah. you have a good experience there? I did. I loved it. You know, and I, I've heard from people that it's changed a little bit. I don't really know anyone who goes there now except for people I think it's part school. of Tufts It's part of Tufts now. officially. Yeah. It always had a relationship with Tufts. I took classes at Tufts okay. when I was there. But now I think it's really been um, uh, wrapped into Tufts in a more, uh, in a, more inclusive and more included way I, I don't really know how to put it but yeah it's definitely like it's one school now yeah. versus being this sort of separate satellite entity um I had a wonderful time I found it to be very open uh it really suited my experimental nature um you know there were not a lot the boundaries were very loose in terms of the classes you were taking and the the professors the teachers I had a lot of engagement with them and I would kind of see them outside of school and go to their openings it, it all felt very um, organic and and really uh, encouraged a lot of uh, conceptual thinking and experimentation and working in mediums that I hadn't really considered when I was younger you know I came in as a painter and I left having mostly focused on video installation and performance arts. So, you wow. know, it definitely kind of opened up my mind. And it also got me thinking a lot about, you know, I love traditional art mediums a lot because I'm a craftsperson. Right. But there was also something about the conceptual and uh, the art theory that I studied that really got me thinking about art as a lens to view the world, right? And how we can kind of use um, art to make sense of things and to think about history or politics or whatever. And, you know, I feel like I yeah. still think that way. Um, but in a way, I've sort of shifted the lens from art to fashion. And how do we look at all kinds of different things kind of through the lens of fashion? That's super cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really neat. All right. So um, so you graduated and then um, do they teach you anything about business oh, that's God, always no. the question yeah. right like I feel like um, maybe that's a hole in some uh, MFA programs yeah. or undergraduate art programs where they're not really 
having so much of a focus on how to turn this into a business and um, get a job. It's true. I feel like there were resources at the school. I don't want to deny that. There were definitely resources at the school, but there wasn't like a class that you had to take. Yeah, like a part of the core curriculum. Exactly. I could have benefited from just like a, you know, business class for artists. And I remember even there was some talk about that either when I was there or after when my husband was in graduate school there and um, you know, just hearing that a little bit, you know, we should be teaching It's not sexy this. and maybe people don't yeah. want to use some of their credits that way, but... Yeah, and I think maybe it's... Cha- I, I, would, I would not be surprised if they offered it now because I feel like a sort of the entrepreneurial spirit of things now and yeah. uh, the way we kind of view work and, and business and creativity is very different than it was when I was in college. And, you know, when I was there, there was still a lot of this, you're an artist who makes work that goes in a gallery and you get discovered and all this stuff. So and it was now very it's very approach. direct to totally. market, exactly. direct to audience. Yeah, exactly. So I think I definitely could have benefited from some more practical knowledge. Uh, But I think what I did take away was a really deep um, connection to the process of art making and a lot of conviction about it. And so that I think helped me struggle through some of the hurdles involved in later when I'd go on to start a business or trying to make money off of my art. Okay, so Mm -hmm. you came out, got some jobs, it sounds like a a couple of different interesting jobs that kind of put you through almost a Second layer of education. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. So talk a little bit about that phase that kind of led up to founding your own business. So um, after college, you know, I was just, I graduated with an art degree and it's funny. I was like, what am I going to do for work? I'd worked retail through most of college. Again, I've always been a clothes person. I've always loved clothing. So I worked at a bunch of different uh, clothing stores in college I worked in their display departments. I did visual merchandising. I did display fabrication. And so I did that for a while. I kind of dabbled in those areas. Um, And eventually I got kind of sick of the more corporate work culture. I was working for big companies like Anthropology, um, which are creatively very interesting, but in the inner workings, very, very corporate and very structured and, um, you know, pointed. Uh, So I kind of found my way to smaller boutiques, which was really uh, enriching because you sort of get to see how the business is run in a a real way. And it's just one or two people kind of running a small business. So I got a bit of a crash course in small business stuff from working at a vintage boutique uh, after college where I was basically an assistant manager. I bought inventory. I managed it. I ran the shop most days. And this is in Boston. This was in Boston. It was okay. in Jamaica Plain. It's no longer, a shop is no longer in business, but it was really awesome when it was there and she had beautiful stuff. Yeah. But we'd go on buying trips and I'd buy stuff consignment. And the other thing I did was I did the alterations. So I spent a lot of time looking at the inner workings of vintage clothing, which if you've ever kind of taken apart vintage clothing, you learn some incredible things about how garments are put together, right? Um, And I also did alterations. So people Mm -hmm. would come in and they would buy something vintage and I'd tailor it to fit them. So I learned a lot about fitting to people's bodies. And I also learned a lot about um, just how things were constructed and about textiles and um, all these beautiful things. And I learned a lot about fashion history that way as well. Mm -hmm. And at this time, when I was working at the vintage store, um, I also had, you know, because I'd been sewing for such a long time, it sort of became my fallback after art school, right? What am I going to do for money? I sort of fell back on my sewing skills, which is interesting. And um, along with doing, working at this vintage boutique, doing alterations, 
I also started taking on custom clothing clients. So I would meet people, you know, I left my card at several fabric shops and places in the area and at my the boutique where I worked because people need alterations. It's a, it's a common thing I think that people are in search for. I still to this day will get people sending me a random email. My friend needs a wedding dress hemmed or, you know, needs a bridesmaid dress fitted or needs some pants tailored or something. I still get those emails to this day. It's something that I feel like it's not as available culturally as it once was when a lot of things were sure. custom made. Yeah. Um, so people, there's a, there's a demand for it. So I started this little custom clothing business and it kind of picked up. And I did all kinds of different things. Um, I did, you know, your typical wedding and bridesmaid type things. Um, I also made just casual clothing for people that couldn't find what they wanted. And, you know, I had one great client that I had for a couple of years that just brought me beautiful fabric. And we had a couple different styles of blouse that I made for her. Uh, another woman who had this these jackets that she loved to have just to wear. Um, and so I would customize these jackets for her, button-up shirts, um, all kinds of different things. Okay. Um, so that was kind of another way that I kind of built up my chops. I did some film costumes on, you know, on hire, on contract, all kinds of different things. Right. All right. So you were learning about clothing, learning about clients, mm-hmm. learning about business, yep. learning yep. about a lot of different things. Pricing things. How do I charge for things? Contracts was a tough lesson to learn. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, only had one big snafu with that, unfortunately. Uh-huh. Um uh, so, you know, doing that and working in the vintage boutique, uh, kind of was a big, uh, time period where I really learned a lot about fitting, about constructing clothing for people, got really inspired by vintage, um, and sort of learned some of those lessons about, uh, running a business in that, in that way. And then you started teaching, mm-hmm. um, and it sounds like teaching is what really led you into having your own pattern business. Absolutely. And so you were teaching at JP Knit and Stitch, which is yes. funny because when I read that as I was preparing to talk with you today, I, it was funny. I, I just taught a class last week at JP mm. Knit and Stitch and I was like, that's oh, awesome. that's funny. But my class was about Etsy, about mm-hmm. setting up an Etsy shop, but nice. I was just there and, um, it, it's under new ownership yep. probably from the time that you began teaching mm-hmm. there but it's still a very beautiful shop it's a great shop yeah um yeah and that's the other thing that was my other kind of formative post-college retail small business you know being I spent a lot of time not only teaching there but working for um the owners and develop you know uh doing all kinds of things merchandising windows the same kinds of things I was doing in my retail job but you know with the owners who are very wonderful and transparent and remain, you know, one of whom remains like a really good friend to this day, um, learned so much just about all the things that go into running a small business, marketing, inventory, all of these different things. And so uh, I actually started by teaching there. Um, and I was a little scared of teaching when I first started doing it. You know, I'll talk more about that in a little bit if we get into it. Um, but that was a place where I really got my foundational teaching chops um, and started to gain a lot of confidence in that skill set, which I found came pretty naturally to me. And it's something that brings me a tremendous amount of joy. Um, and so in that place, it was kind of working the small business angle. Eventually, I ended up um, te- uh, working in the shop as well and working in a, in a, a pretty uh, serious capacity when I was living in JP. Uh, along with teaching classes. And what worried you about teaching? I mean, I mean, mm-hmm. teaching is, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, that's my formal training. Yeah. So I have a master's degree in education yeah, yeah. and I, I, you know, I worked as a teacher. That's the the one thing I do have formal yeah. training yeah, in. Totally. Um, <laughs> all the rest of it yeah. I've made up Figured as I went along. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's funny. But um, so what, what was, um, I mean, 
you do have formal training in and actually uh, in art and in making. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering what made you nervous about teaching? So, you know, to be pretty frank, a lot of it is social anxiety, which I've spent a lot of my life managing anxiety and figuring out ways to work with it. And so a big component of it was just getting comfortable putting myself out there in front of people. I think you're not alone in that. I, mean, oh, I think absolutely. a lot of people who work, well, in many industries, but certainly in our industry, mm-hmm. um, do really suffer from social anxiety and mm-hmm. worry about that exact, and that really can hold you back from mm-hmm. plunging into teaching or from speaking at conferences. Totally, and absolutely. From, um, and even, and we can talk about this later, but even um, from putting yourself out there on social media as 100%, well. 100%. Yeah. And that's, a, yeah, I'd love to talk about yeah. that later because that's definitely something it's that hard. I think about a lot. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you know, part of it was just my anxiety that I struggle with on my own. Another part of it was, you know, I was in my very early 20s and hadn't really done a lot of that putting myself out there to begin with, but I had some training for it in my retail experience. So when I started teaching, I kind of channeled my customer service brain, which was, I think, probably a way that I, a coping mechanism I'd kind of built for social anxiety, right? Because when you when you have trouble with anxiety, you sort of figure out these ways to move through the world. And one of the ways was like, okay, if I'm in a job and I have a particular thing that I need to do for a customer, it's not about me. So you can right. kind of take yourself out role. of the equation. Exactly. Yeah. It's almost like a performance. You're sort of performing an identity. Right. Which you had performance art. Exactly. So, so yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it came naturally. That was one of the ways that I kind of worked with my anxiety growing up most of my life, but a lot in my early 20s was um, come, having these sort of personas where I felt empowered and I felt like I knew what I was talking about. Yeah. And I had ease with people. And so as I was working retail in the shop and, and really felt a lot of ownership over it because I really cared about the shop and enjoyed working there... And also teaching these classes, it kind of gave me a lot of confidence that I lacked earlier in my life. It helped me kind of build confidence. Um, and when I meet people who are interested, getting interested in teaching and they feel like, oh, I'm nervous about teaching, you know, I don't think I'm going to be good at it. I always encourage them that it's going to be scary, but to give it a try, because in, in a lot of cases, it's a really good way to build confidence mm-hmm. and to get comfortable with like speaking in front of people and all of those sorts of things. Doesn't mean you're not going to be nervous ever. I was nervous coming in here today, but right. I have tools to kind of deal with it. You know what I mean? Right, right. I wanted to take a minute now to talk a little bit about our sponsor, Kai Scissors. I own a pair of Kai Scissors, and they are the preferred blade in my sewing room. I absolutely love them. And um, so here are some things that you might not know about Kai Scissors. First of all, they are smooth, strong, and sharp to the tip, and that is definitely true. The 5000 series are hardened stainless steel and the metal allows them to be strong and hold their edge and then take a new edge when the time comes. All Kai scissors can be sharpened by any local reputable sharpener. I actually haven't even taken mine to be sharpened yet because they are still sharp after over a year of using them. The 7000 series are made of high carbon hardened stainless steel, and the carbon part is key. These are Kai's flagship scissors. The carbon allows the scissors to be harder, stronger, and sharper. And sharper means that they can put a steeper angled edge on the cutting blades. Steeper equals sharper. 
Steeper also means a thinner edge. If you put a sharper, thinner edge on any scissors, the edge is brittle and wears out really quickly. Having the carbon though keeps that from happening. What does sharper mean to you, the sewer? Sharper means it's easier to cut things out. We hear cuts like butter all the time. This is coming from Jeff over at Kai Scissors. He says that um, when something is easier to cut, then you have a lot less fatigue on your hands and on your arms. And this really helps people who are cutting several layers of fabric or who are cutting thicker fabrics, which I do all the time because I cut um, fleece and felt for making dolls and toys. Kai is a global manufacturer. They are based in Japan and they make over 10,000 different products. All of them are scissors and knives and shears and various kinds of products that cut things. Head over to um, kaiscissors.com where you can check out their full range of products and also get free shipping on everything within the United States. So that's kaiscissors.com. Go check them out. Thank you so much, Kai Scissors. And now back to my conversation with Taylor. And then what did it give you? I mean, it sounds like you ended up absolutely loving it and mm-hmm. it sort of gave you a lot. And, absolutely. Um, and then it gave you a pattern business. So totally. talk about that as well. So, um, you know, as I kept teaching more and more, I got more and more comfortable with it. And I, something about, um, there's a lot of different facets of it. So I'll just get into the main ones. One of them is I, I love to empower people. When people feel uh, uncomfortable or self-conscious, and it can be anything like feeling uncomfortable with your body or with your skills or feeling like you're not creative or feeling like you need, you know, some sort of outlet as a, as a way to like make yourself feel good. There's a million different things that, um, that sewing can bring to people's lives, right? Yeah. Ways that it can be, you know, therapeutic or empowering or um, exciting or fun. And so I started pretty quickly to really kind of hone in on that experience that people were having. Um, and because I was focusing on clothing, it was mostly that experience of um, not having things that fit and wanting to make clothing so that you could actually wear something that fits you and that you feel comfortable and confident in. Um, and so, you know, as I was teaching, I really connected to that in people. And, you know, just I'm the kind of person where, and I don't know if this is how I was raised or just what kind of person I am. I'm very empathic and being of service is really important to me. So teaching was like the perfect way to do the craft that I loved, right? And really immerse myself in that process and also help other people get the same joy out of it. So it was like this beautiful combination of getting to do the thing that I love and also helping people at the same time, which is like, who doesn't want a job like that? Right. You know what I mean? So as I was working on that, along with having the support of this indie fabric shop, right? Mm-hmm. I was looking at all these sewing patterns. And I remember early in the days of indie patterns when it was pretty much just Colette yeah. and maybe a handful of other ones. Like 20, know, Sewaholic 13. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was right around that time when I had been teaching for a couple of years. And yeah, so yeah, even like early 2010s kind of okay, time yeah, period. Okay, yeah, Yeah. I was thinking a lot about that. Um, and... 
you know, I thought, could I do this? Could I make sewing patterns and kind of use it as a way for me to create my own designs and bring some of my teaching philosophies into a little package that anybody can consume, right? Because I can't travel, I mean, it'd be cool to travel all over the world um, uh, teaching classes, but I... I'm kind of a homebody and I don't love flying, so I don't think I'm doing that anytime soon, although I do love to go teach an occasional class somewhere else. Um, I wanted to be able to share the little insights and um, things that I'd picked up with people. And I also wanted to create patterns that had that sort of conceptual historical thing that I was so attracted to. Like there were a lot of patterns that felt like it was sort of like what you would want to buy in a store and then just how you make it. I wanted like a little more, like I wanted right. a little story. I wanted a little concept, a little bit of that art to come into it. Yeah, you know? right. You come from an art background mm -hmm. and right. There are quite a few patterns on the market now and there's definitely a place for them mm -hmm. where it's like you feel like you go into Madewell, mm -hmm. right? And you see the Madewell tank top mm -hmm. and then this is the pattern, the home sewing pattern exactly. version of that. Mm -hmm. And that's awesome. I yeah, mean, I agree. Right. I then you make of those types yeah, of things. Yeah, me too. I mean, yep. that's probably the first few patterns that I made. Mm -hmm. um, there's definitely a place for that. But you had an idea for something that was going to be somewhat different from that. Yeah, and I think part of that comes from, you know, my background in art of making a lot of, when I, towards the end of my college and early, when I was doing all that retail stuff, I was making art and being in exhibitions and stuff and making a lot of projects that were sort of educational and interactive. And that interactivity was always really important to me and that story and that narrative and that... Um, you know, learning things that you didn't know before. I'm a big history buff. One of the things I teach is history of fashion. And I've just always loved that kind of stuff. And so, you know, I come from uh, books and zines and those kinds of things that are like these little bits of information. I just kind of love eating up information. You know, a weird way to finish a hem, uh, the story of why a certain, you know, thing was called what it was, like where that came about. And so when I made my patterns, it was, I think, half about making a garment that someone could make, the actual sewing part. And then the other part, like, how do I turn this into an art project, a conceptual art project with, like, a story? So all of my patterns have, like, a little story about the history of the type of building that inspired it. And so that was, like, really important to me going into it. Right. And so they started as zines, which is really cool. And it's just for people, I mean, it's hard to believe that you know, maybe people might, might not know, know what a yeah. zine is, um, <laughs> totally. because I feel like zines were blogs before there were blogs. Totally. Um, absolutely. But, absolutely. but if absolutely. you can just explain what a zine is, oh, sure. and then what the, or like, what the, your early patterns were like, and how they were like a zine. So, okay, so a zine is basically a self-published magazine uh, that people made as sort of the DIY equivalent to these big polished magazines. It's like the little indie boutique of you know, magazines. And nowadays, you see a lot more small independent magazines focusing on these things that are um, glossy and, you know, really well produced. Uh, but at the time, if you wanted to circulate information, and especially information outside of what was ex accepted, you know, zines in a lot of ways were a way for people who were outside of um, the status quo to circulate information to each other. 
you know, whether that was, you know, information about like health or LGBTQ stuff or, you know, any kind of thing that's on the margins that doesn't have a lot of writing about it. And especially at that time, if we're talking like 90s, early 2000s, did not, right? Right. So it was a way for people to share information with each other uh, in a sort of like pen pal kind of way, but um, without having to go through the conduits of like a large scale publication. Um, So I kind of got into zines because um, when I was, I was really into book arts in college and I was always really into collage and I made a lot of zine type things when I was in high school too. um, And I was certainly very interested in them. And when I went to college, I started experimenting with making zines that were specifically about um, some of the art theory that I was reading and kind of taking it apart and taking it out of an academic context, which has been a little bit of a theme through my life of taking these sort of conceptual academic things and then taking them out of that context and trying to make them accessible to anybody. Um, So, uh, you know, some of my early zines were uh, about... Uh, a question, right? A theoretical question I would pose and I would have all of my friends in art school um, write a little article about it, you know. Uh, And then also making things like zines about actually like making stuff. Um, I did a zine, we did a zine for a wedding, like we made a commemorative zine for a wedding that I think is in the collection of the museum school's like zine library. Love it. Um, So, Yeah, so, and when I started conceptualizing these patterns, they really started out as zines. And I I ended up actually making pattern zines later on, after I'd made the initial, you know, regular package paper patterns. But I have on my computer, I look back, I look back to them the other day, I have all these early iterations before I actually launched my patterns, and they were just zines. Like, they were booklets that walked you through the process of drafting a pattern and then stitching it up and had all these little illustrations and anecdotes and stuff. So I sort of came into this pattern making um, process. Like I didn't want to recreate the big four envelope tissue paper thing. And so I think I ended up sort of somewhere in between where I lost a lot of the content that comes with the zine, but I still kept the story. I kept the very detailed instructions. I kept the hand-drawn illustrations, which I still do to this day, but I do them on the computer so they're more legible. Um, and I also had, uh, the cover designed by a different artist each time I did it. I've since changed that, uh, for a number of different reasons, but the first, uh, three patterns I worked with an artist friend to create the cover for. Mm. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of how the kind of zine trajectory worked its way into the sewing patterns. And I did end up, um, later I've made actually a couple zines that are patterns, um, so I want to keep doing that. I have a couple in my head. Um, so I've kind of returned to that a little bit. And talk a, a little bit about the name Blueprints. Mm-hmm. Um, so the inspiration for connecting the patterns to architecture. So I have always been kind of like a weird architecture nerd. I have like, I have no experience in architecture. I don't really have any formal training in it. I always thought of myself as kind of an outsider architect like I have this sort of understanding of what architecture is but it's very much my own imagined kind of thing and since then I've done a lot of reading and research about it and now I'm much more informed about it but you know I was the kid who uh, instead of drawing pictures of like dragons and stuff I would do blueprints for my dream house I have like all of these different I wish I still had them but when I was a kid that's all I'd do is I'd draw house blueprints and I'd draw furniture and 
you know, if you'd known better, I might have gone into uh, interior design or something like that or architecture. So domestic spaces have always been really, really interesting to me and specifically domestic spaces, right? I have memories of houses that I went to when I was a kid that still feel impactful to me. You know, going to visit uh, my dad's friend in, uh, I think, in like Mill Valley outside of San Francisco in this beautiful 70s wood sort of bohemian house with a spiral staircase and cobblestone floors. Like, I remember this stuff in a really visceral way, and I can't quite explain what's so appealing to me about it. But when I was coming up with this idea for the pattern uh, company, you know, I I kind of went immediately to that. I didn't even think about it. I was like, oh, obviously I'm going to make clothing that's inspired by domestic architecture. So I kind of um, played around with different ideas and eventually landed on this idea of a cabin pattern. I'm like, okay, I'm going to make start with like a really basic shift dress that has pockets because everything has pockets. I think I only have one pattern that doesn't have pockets because yeah, it's a t-shirt. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, I always put pockets in everything. I'm obsessed. Um, you know, just like a basic shift. I wanted it to kind of be something that anybody could make and have it be um, this little cabin inspired like you're thinking about this little simple structure that can do a lot of different things and is cozy and is utilitarian. And so that was sort of where that evolved from. And they've just kind of, you know, gone from there. I'll get interested in a particular piece of architecture. I'll start to think about the design process in terms of clothing and fashion and then try to find something that hits at a really nice place in the middle. And there's the one that's, there's like a pullover sweatshirt that's like a, is it pronounced geodesic? You know, I'm not 100% sure. <laughs> it's either geodesic or geodesic. Okay. And I say it both ways. I think it's like a tomato tomato. Okay. Thing. All right. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, but it's, you know, one of those domes where it's like glass and it's divided up into sections and mm-hmm. the sweatshirt has that same sort of look to it. Totally. So that one started out very conceptual. I was reading a lot about Buckminster Fuller and also about a commune in the 60s and 70s in Colorado called Drop City, which was um, their whole thing. It goes back to the repurposed materials. They were using um, old car parts to build these geodesic domes and um, you know, doing art and making these giant collaborative paintings. And eventually, I think the community fell apart, you know, as do most utopian uh, yeah. communes. Um, but I was really fascinated by it. And I'd been thinking a lot about, okay, can I take this modular concept and apply it to like something that everyone wears, like a sweatshirt? Yeah. Right? And just make it's it super mod and cool. Yeah. yeah and you could color block that and totally. it'd be amazing. I've seen people make it. My favorite thing is when I see people just make it out of all their old t shirts. Yeah, totally. With right. like prints and like text on them. Just go for and it. Yeah. I have a friend who made one, like some of her like dad's old shirts were in it with like a weird logo on them. I've seen people do some super cool things yeah. with that pattern. Oh, it yeah. makes me really, really happy. Because, again, it's like part of it was, you know, Buckminster Fuller was big on, like, using kind of pre-made materials and trying to be uh, thoughtful and sustainable before that was really a thing. And so, you know, I wanted to make this scrappy sweatshirt so that people could use their scraps. So the process, the actual, like, mathematical geometry process of trying to actually get that to work as a pattern turned out to be far more complicated than I thought it did. But I landed on something that I feel like works pretty well. Um, But it is just made out of all the same size triangle, just like the geodesic or certain types. There's there's like several different types of geodesic domes and ISO, now I'm going to forget, but um, certain formats where it's like triangle, then this size of triangle, they're not all exactly the same size. Um, but for the purpose of this pattern, I tried to make all of the triangles the same size. Um, 
so that you can kind of make it like any length. I actually saw someone make a dress. Oh, There's sure. no dress version of the pattern, but all you do is just put more triangles on the bottom and yeah. you've got a dress. Yeah. Um, There's something very quilty about it as well. T- that's the other thing, yeah. totally. And you can tell who the quilters are by who really focuses on getting the points. <laughs> I want all my points up. lined up, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Versus people like, I'm not going to care. I don't want to match up the points. It's right. hard. For those of you out there, if you've made the sweatshirt and you struggle with matching the points, it's hard. It's hard. It's okay. Life is a challenge. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's just part of life. Right, right, right. Exactly. So let's let's talk a little bit about social media then. So mm-hmm. um, you do a really nice job on Instagram of taking pictures, selfies. I mean, a lot of, you know, showing your outfits is about taking selfies um and getting comfortable with that but you do do that and take pictures of what you're wearing and talk about how you're feeling and what you're wearing Mm -hmm. and um you know a lot of uh yeah a lot of outfit pictures so Talk about how you do that, sort of the mechanics of it. Mm-hmm. You know, do you use a tripod? Is, is your husband taking these pictures? Or, or how are you getting these pictures taken? And then also about your own comfort level and your own feelings of seeing yourself mm. that way and seeing people react to it mm-hmm. and the kind of comments that you get mm-hmm. and sort of responding to those comments and that sort of thing. So it's a really interesting question. I, you know, I'll just come out at the beginning and say that when I first launched this business and the prospect of posting pictures of myself and things came up, I was really, really self-conscious and I struggled a lot with it. And I would say that I have gotten much more comfortable with it, but I'm, I still feel self-conscious from time to time. So that's something like I've been doing it at this point. You know, I think I started Blueprints in 2014. So it's been like five years yeah. of posting selfies yeah. of myself. And you still I feel, still feel self-conscious yeah. sometimes. If I'm having a bad day or I feel like I don't, I'm not feeling comfortable in my skin, yeah. it's hard to post. And But what I've found that's really interesting is that one of the things that I really like about Instagram is that people respond mostly pretty well to authenticity. And so, you know, if I don't look that great in the picture by my own standards, probably no one else is going to think about that. And a lot of times I just get really nice comments from people. I'm very lucky, you know, hope, luckily I have no trolls that I'm not going to get any anytime soon because um, I don't have, I don't think I have enough followers for those numbers to work out, but maybe someday. Um, but it is, you know, it's a process of kind of self-acceptance. And as I've gotten older, I mean, I've been working on this project for long enough that I've sort of matured as a human, right? I've gotten more comfortable with seeing pictures of myself and being okay with taking a picture of myself that like, I don't think looks really that good and maybe making it part of the conversation. Like I think, I can't remember if it was recently. I feel like the other day I posted something where I was like, I really want to show you my outfit, but I super badly need a haircut and I don't really look that great in this picture, but here's my outfit. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I think people can relate to that because yeah. a lot of people feel like that. Sure. You know, we don't all live like polished, yeah. you know, lives that are Instagrammable. And I think that most people don't, but some people are really good at creating that for the camera. It's that performance thing again, like we were talking about. Yeah. So people often ask me like, oh, how do you get used to hearing the sound of your own voice? Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, I just don't. Yeah. Like, it just, I just do what I need to do to get the podcast made because I really like having a podcast. Yeah, totally. And so <laughs> I don't, you know, I just don't worry totally, about it. Yeah. I just do what I need to do because I like to do this. And totally. that's about all it is. Totally. And I put it out there and, you know, this is how my voice <laughs> sounds. Totally. Exactly. What no, can I do? I think about that. And it's so funny because when I hear podcasts with people that have never heard speak, there's always that interesting moment where you go, oh, that's what that person oh, sure. sounds like. Well, I have that as well. Yeah. I mean, I invite a guest on and you absolutely never know what that person yeah, totally. sounds like. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, but I have that thing. I'm probably not going to listen to this for like months <laughs> after we record it. 
Like, there's certain actors who won't watch movies that they've been right, in. Right, right. There's something I think about the human condition yeah, of that. It's just yeah. a, it's a weird thing. Yeah. I don't know if it's culturally, if we've sort of, can, if it's a, a construct that we've created where we're not supposed to like what we sound like. I don't know. Could be uh, yeah. anything. Or yeah. Could be but else. I mean, part of running a business that's based on, you know, your own fashion sense mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. putting your pictures of yourself wearing your clothes you have to be on your, Instagram. You have to be sort of a brand ambassador. <laughs> you for do. Your, you have to be the yourself. face of your business. You do. And I've, I've watched other people, and I think this is a good strategy and probably works for a lot of people, separate their personal accounts from their business account. And part of the reason I've never... I know Sari did that. Yep. A lot of people have done that. And and then I also know people that haven't done that. that sure. They've kept it kind of mixed together. together. Yeah. I've sort of opted to keep it mixed together because, I don't know, like I like to keep it real. I, the polished thing, like I've mentioned before, never feels too good for me. I feel like I want so much of... So much of what I do is about personal connection. Mm-hmm. And so I want people who buy my patterns to know that I'm there and that I'm making them and that I'm making them out of love for them. And so I want there to be that connection, even if we never meet, even if we never, they never leave a comment or, you know, I send them a pattern, I never hear from them or anything. Like just the fact that it's like a human connection thing is really important to me. Right. So, so and so are you doing this now full-time blueprints, the combination between teaching and the pattern company and sort of all the different things related to the sewing mm-hmm. business mm-hmm. full time or do you have another job that you're also doing that's sort of unrelated so that it's 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 teaching and doing blueprints okay i do uh, blueprints half of the time and then the other half of the time I'm teaching and in the last couple of years I've gone much more almost like not full time but sort of on a teaching on a college professor level I'm teaching three courses a semester which is you know a pretty full course and you're load. teaching not just at you're at J are you still at JP I'm not teaching no. at so JP you're teaching tell anymore. us where you're teaching now. so I teach at Bay State College they have okay. a fashion department fashion design and merchandising I've been there for about three years and I'm also teaching a couple of classes at a place down where I live uh, at a fabric store called the Franklin Mill Store. I have a long-term Thursday morning group, wonderful, almost like a social group at this point, wonderful women. Um, and then I have an evening class. I tend to do an evening class at the Elliott School in JP, which has been there for hundreds of years. Yeah, that's a, a school for yeah. crafts. Yep. Yeah. They do art, woodworking, photography, sewing all kinds of different crafts. It's a wonderful place. And what are you teaching at the Elliott School? The Elliott School, I have three classes, no, two classes that I do, and then I'll throw in kind of like a wild card class periodically. I've got a clothing design introduction class, and I designed it to be sort of a, a crash course in clothing design for people who don't have any formal education but who like sewing to learn a little bit of pattern making, a little bit of fitting, a little bit of construction, and basically you go from a sketch to a garment that they've created. So it's kind of a unique course that kind of crams everything together. Um, and I've been doing that for uh, years and it's pretty fun. And I always get like the greatest group of people. The Ellie School gets the greatest students. Yeah, I don't know I'm on is, their mailing list. It's yeah. so enticing. <laughs> Wonderful yeah. people. Um, and so then I do a follow-up class, which is just an open workshop clothing sewing class. And so people will kind of take that and sometimes people will come back next year and take it again. And it's just a a workshop for people to troubleshoot clothing patterns uh, or alter things that they've made or uh, come up with their own patterns. It's kind of just a catch-all kind of class. Yeah. 
Um, that's what I do there. Uh, and then at Bay State, I teach a lot of their foundation design courses, so pattern making and clothing construction. Like I said before, I teach history of fashion. Um, I also, this year I taught CAD pattern making, which was really fun. So using computer-aided software yeah. to make patterns. Um, I've taught all kinds of different classes. I teach draping there. Um, but I, I love their great, they're awesome students. Yeah. Uh, I love those students. Right. So this I love really, all my students. This really launched <laughs> into a, a real teaching, yeah, fat, yeah a real teaching career for absolutely. you. Absolutely. Yeah. And at the, and at the present, I can't talk about it too much. It's still in development, but I'm working on, we're putting together the school is creating, um, my colleague and I kind of, uh, developed it but sort of like a an incubator program for the fashion design students to launch their lines to kind of get their pieces into production this is to develop. yes okay so it's a new program it'll start in the fall um i'm sort of working in continuing to develop it develop it um in the present and over the summer um and we're starting uh in the fall and it should be really cool i'm really excited about it because um, there's not really a program like that anywhere uh in the region that's super so, cool and yeah. i know um you had mentioned that you um, had organized like a slow fashion event and you sent me mm-hmm. some pictures that were really cool and that you are going to do it again. Yeah, we're um, going to try it, to do it again. <laughs> it looked really neat. So tell us a little bit about that. So over this over the school year, the the school year before this one, you know, all my students were doing their senior collections and they were doing designs and I sketch stuff all the time and I make stuff for myself all the time and I'll make little capsule wardrobes. Part of the reason I never became a fashion designer is just because I'm more into the art of it. I'm into the teaching part, the history, the research. And I just never went the route to like release a collection, right? So I thought like, I want to do a collection and it'll be sort of like a conceptual art piece, but I want to have a fashion collection, have it walk the runway and do something kind of different with it. So I started sketching and kind of researching materials. I wanted to work with all sustainable or recycled materials, but it ended up sort of being both. And what happened is it just kind of, it was very serendipitous. It, it evolved into meeting cool people um, and starting to collaborate with them. I collaborated with a wonderful uh, natural dyer based out of Somerville um, named Amy Lustein, who has a wonderful classroom space there. Um, also collaborated with a really cool boutique called Practice Space in Cambridge, um, who does a lot of design research and research about community projects. So, you know, uh, we just, we all kind of gelled and I met all these other cool artists and designers, uh, and clothing designers. And it just kind of grew into this fun event where I did a fashion show and I brought, I styled it cause I didn't have enough of my own stuff for like a full fashion show. It ended up having about 25 looks, but um, I kind of supplemented with pieces from other designers who were featured, um, the boutique that I talked about, um, and uh, a couple other clothing designers who also had little boots. We did sort of like a craft market out of it as well. That's neat. Um, so it was a fashion show, craft market, um, and just sort of a general social event. And so it was kind of an experiment. I was like, can I do this event on slow fashion that feels like sort of a community event, is inspiring to people, uh, brings different artists and designers together to collaborate, and with this sort of slow fashion sustainability theme. Theme, yeah. exactly. Kind of, because I was thinking about joining in in Boston Fashion Week, and I was like, can I just do like the anti-Boston Fashion Week? <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, not to, not to, not anything against Fashion Week, but it was just like, I want to do my own thing. Yeah. Um, so we're thinking about doing it again this year. I keep saying thinking cause I'm like, you know, I want to make sure I can actually make it work before I commit 100%, but we are going to try to do it again this year. 
um, maybe with uh, some other designers than myself showing collections um, and some more educational things like maybe putting together a panel discussion, having a clothing swap, all of these things that fit under the slow fashion yeah. header. If we're thinking of just slow fashion being uh, a more thoughtful, a more ethical, uh, environmentally conscious, more inclusive look at what fashion can be. How can fashion empower people? How can it respect the environment? How can it bring people together? Um, so sort of taking that thesis and making an event out yeah, of it. Yeah, that's fantastic. So we'll see how yeah, it goes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so. it definitely has potential to, to become something mm-hmm. more established. That sounds Terrific. Yeah. Um, so congratulations on that. And um, I want to make sure we get to your recommendations. But um, before we do that, I definitely have to ask you about being a drummer in an indie rock band <laughs> after college. <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh. That's so funny. Yeah. So uh, when I was in, college, in art school, I met a couple friends and played in a folk duo with a friend for a long time. I, like I said, my parents were yeah, musicians. It makes so sense. I kind of went away from it and then uh-huh. came back to it when I was in college and taught myself how to play the drums and um, joined this sort of psychedelic indie rock band, <laughs> which awesome. funny enough was called Quilt. No way! <laughs> Is it still cool. around now? They're, no, they're not still around, but two of the members, all of the members are in different bands now that are all wonderful, um, but you can still, they put out a couple records. I only did the first record with them. I sort of took off and did my sewing thing after the first record. Um, but yeah, that I that's still part of my practice. I love playing the drums. Um, I do it periodically. If I need a break from the sewing machine, I just go like that's hit great. the drums. <laughs> that's awesome. That sounds like a really good break. A really yeah, good, totally. uh, different. It's a good counterpoint. Yeah, exactly. 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 Um, all right. So I want to make sure we get to your list and um, of recommendations. So the first thing you wanted to recommend is a place that I have been, although it was a number of years ago. Uh, I, I can't remember how many years, maybe 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but you uh, wanted to recommend visiting the Gropius House in Lincoln, which oh, is an yeah. absolutely beautiful. It's awesome. Um, an incredible place to tour. It's so cool. And, it, you know, I don't. I doubt it's changed much since you were there. Yeah, I'm sure it hasn't. It's the same. Yeah. It's a protected historic site. Totally. So, yeah. so I'm obsessed with historical houses. Yeah. I go to historical houses wherever I go. <laughs> yeah. And this one holds a special place in my heart because the story behind it is so cool. And the Bauhaus philosophy, this idea of everything being part of an artwork and design as being uh, that our lives should have things that are designed that are both functional and have beautiful forms. So it's like the marriage of those two things um, without getting into a whole, you know, history of art, you know, Bauhaus kind of thing. But the Gropius House, which is in Lincoln, Massachusetts, it's kind of out north suburbs. Um, it's so cool. It's it. So when when uh, the Grop when the Bauhaus was disbanded during World War Two, right, um, Gropius and his wife, Isa, and many of the other members of Bauhaus basically left to escape the Nazis. And Gropius got an appointment at Harvard so he was going to be teaching at Harvard and some of his friends and benefactors basically banded together because they had to get out of there with nothing and loaned him some money to build a house in Lincoln and some land um, and so they built this beautiful house it's very modest it's small it's a I think a three-bedroom house I feel like it's the same square footage as my house which is very small and he did this beautiful thing where he combined um, the vernacular architecture of New England, which he was really interested in, which is very different than Germany, you know, Bauhaus era Germany and Bauhaus design in general. And he took all these elements and he combined them in these beautiful ways, like using colonial house siding as a decorative element on the inside of the house. So oh, if you yeah, ever, I if, remember that. If you ever get a chance to go and his office is still set up and 
his wife was amazing. Like she uh, sort of took on this role of being like Mrs. Bauhaus and spoke about the idea. She helped him in his architecture practice. She wore incredible things. She made her own jewelry and hats. Um, so I'd love to really learn more about her. There's not a lot of uh, writing about Isagropius, but that's kind of on my list of things to read about. So anyway, if you get a chance ever to go to the Gropius house and just to look at it, it's it's so it's so like relatable, but it's also a beautiful example of design. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what's so powerful about it, I think. Like it could be like anybody's house. Yeah, know? totally. It's mm-hmm. super cool. Um, and you, they have open tours, and I mm-hmm. went in the evening. Mm-hmm. I remember, so mm-hmm. it was like lit mm-hmm. at night. It yeah. was super cool. Yeah. Um, so definitely worth making an appointment or going totally. finding out when it's open and mm-hmm. going if you're in the Boston area. It's not too far from Boston. No, no, yeah. it's probably like I don't know, 45 minutes yeah. outside of the city. Yeah. Totally mm-hmm. worth going. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, and you brought a book um, yes, I did. called Nomadic Furniture. I did. Um, so tell us about um, about this book and why you like it. So I discovered this book when I was in college and this was again when I was sort of in my I'm kind of obsessed with architecture but I don't know what it is. I'm relating to it in weird ways. And I used to go, just go to the library and just look at the stacks and just see what books were there. Like that was something that I did a lot and I still kind of do. Actually, I love libraries. And I saw this the spine of this book. I'm like, nomadic furniture. That sounds so cool. And I pulled it out and it's an entirely handwritten, like a, a zine, essentially, like a published zine. Okay. If you look, it's oh, all yeah, about, like, it's all like written in handwriting. If anybody's ever seen the Moosewood Cookbook. Oh, yes. Which exactly. Is, like, That's famous, what it reminds me yeah. of. Yes. It's all handwritten. There's lo- lots of beautiful illustrations, but like kind of cut and paste photographs. They too. do not make books like this No, anymore. they really don't. They really don't. So <laughs> yeah. I want to make books like this. Yeah, although they should. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's all about making your own furniture. And it has a very, it, it was put out in the, I want to say like 75 or something. So it has a very modern aesthetic mm-hmm. um, and it's very conceptual and it's these, you know, there's one section that are these kind of like living cubes that are different cubes that you build that you set up for different purposes if you had a big warehouse space or something and there's just a section that's like here are things you can find out in the world to make bookshelves out of like orange crates, milk crates, just a whole section on that. Like here's how to make a light fixture out of an old gallon jug of milk. So it's very DIY but it's DIY in this way that like elevates it to like an art form, which is really appealing to me. And I, you know, I've built several of the furniture pieces out of this book. Uh huh. Um, it's just really that's cool. super cool. Yeah. yeah, and you can still find copies of it. It's out of print, but yeah, sure. I'm you, sure I've, you can. I've found copies on Amazon. It, you know, it's not expensive. Yeah. If you're at all interested in building DIY furniture and you need a break from Pinterest, I would highly recommend <laughs> uh, this Nomadic Furniture book. And I there's a Nomadic Furniture too. There's like a second, uh-huh. a second, uh, like a next, you know, a sequel or whatever. Right, right, right. Okay, so. that's super cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and your last recommendation is color wheels. Okay. <laughs> so I don't remember any of my formal color theory from college, um, but I've recently gotten really into color theory because I taught a class a couple semesters ago that was about um, creating branding and logos. And so I was like, I need to go back and like relook at my color theory and I just got so excited about color schemes, like, you know, complementary colors and analogous colors. And once you really get into that, the fundamentals of that, I've been really into using it to put together outfits Mm. and to make color combinations for graphic design things. They're really simple. It's like complementary colors or a triad or analogous colors. It's like this cute little formula that you can use. So, you know, complementary colors are like red and uh, red and green, right? Right. Um, orange and blue and yellow and purple. It's so simple. It's so fundamental. And you can kind of like, I love making an outfit where I put together 
like orange and blue garments. Yeah. I never like, thought why about does this it work? for dressing. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, why does this outfit look so good? I'm like, because oh, right. it's complimentary colors. <laughs> right. So it's a nice little strategy. If anyone's feeling like their wardrobe needs a little shake up or they want to put things together that they wouldn't have expected, I recommend complimentary colors. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to do bright orange, bright blue. You can do like robin's egg blue and rusty orange. Or you can do, I love olive green and rose. Because mm-hmm. that's red and red and green, but it's not like you know, Christmas stocking right. red and green. Yeah, so oh, that's a great kind of idea. A fun, I've just been really into that lately. Totally. Mm-hmm. And I have to ask you about your anxiety necklace. Mm-hmm. So you're wearing this necklace that has, it's gold, a gold chain, and it just has the word anxiety in a very sort of like dainty like script. And I think it's fantastic. Thank and you. Um, my oldest daughter um, suffers from anxiety, and I'm totally going to get it first. Oh, you should. It's where wonderful. It came from. So this came from a company called Bandeau. And oh, yes. Did, I love Bandeau. They did a collaboration. I can't remember who it was with, but... They uh, created these necklaces, and all of the proceeds go to a, a group called Bring Change to Mind, which is uh, dedicated to ending stigmatization around mental illness. So I've had general anxiety since I was a kid. It's been really challenging for me at different times of my life. Um, I'm in a good place with it now, but there's been other times where I haven't. And especially because I'm a teacher, I'm in a place where I'm interacting with people all the time. I think they designed the necklace to be a conversation starter. Yeah. And it's functioned as that for me to be able to be open with people about. I my think anxiety it would function with my that way for her as mm-hmm. well, mm-hmm. which is why I want to get it because totally. Um, I mean, she's really great about mm-hmm. advocating for herself, and that's awesome. Um, she's really open about it. Mm-hmm. Um, she'll talk to anybody mm-hmm. about it, which is why I think it would work for her. I think yeah. for some people who maybe are more shy about it, it wouldn't work. But for yeah. her, she's like, you know, so Let's open about, about it. it. Let's yeah. talk about it it's exactly. Great. So I, I think if she was wearing yeah. that necklace, it would just be a great way for her to talk about it more. It, it's almost like a little talisman. You yes. Know? Like when I have it on, it's like a way to kind of check in with myself and see, you know, how I'm feeling and. Um, and it's, 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 I've had some really nice conversations with people that I might not have otherwise opened up to and vice versa. So it's, yeah. it's really quite nice. I love that. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, Taylor, thank you so much for coming to visit me and for talking to me about your, your career and about, um, about all the different things that you do. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And you've been listening to the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Visit my blog, walshynaps.com, where you can sign up for my email newsletter to get the best in sewing, blogging, and small business delivered right to your inbox each week. Today's episode was sponsored by Kai Scissors. Kai Scissors are the premier sewing, quilting, tailoring, and craft scissors available today. Made of hardened stainless steel, they are smooth, light, and offer fatigue-free cutting for all of your cutting needs. Kai Manufacturing has been making quality cutting blades for over 100 years. So remember, all orders on kaiscissors.com have free shipping inside the United States. That's kaiscissors.com. Thank you so much, Kai Scissors. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much, and I will see you next time.